This morning we are going to jump into Matthew chapter 5 again and we are going to continue meditating on this passage and it is uh, such an important passage of scripture for us as followers of Christ because in this passage Jesus gives us the characters and the qualities of what it means to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, right? And so that's what the Beatitudes ultimately are. They are a, they're sort of a, uh, they're sort of opposites of what seems right side up in this world. That's what Jesus is laying out to us. But what he's, what he's telling us is those things that seem so upside down are actually the right side up, and we're living in the upside down. And so the kingdom of God is always flipping things over, right, on, on their head. Because what we find out is the head is actually the bottom, and the kingdom in the bottom is actually the head. The last will be first, right? All these opposite reversals in the kingdom where... In this world, we're so trained to think a certain way, and God is teaching us that we have been immersed in something that is unhealthy and that's not good for us. And so uh, let's go ahead and read through this passage together as we get the context of this. Out of Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, when he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, because your reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its flavor, how can it be made salty again? This is the word of the Lord. Can we just give the Lord a praise for his word this morning? Maybe you're there in your home. Let's just lift up a, a shout of praise to the Lord. Thank you for your word, Father, for your guidance. And Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to be able to internalize what you're trying to teach us. We know that, that uh, oftentimes, as humans, our nature is to think that it's the external transformation that is what really matters. But you teach us that it's actually the inner transformation that matters the most, because inner is going to lead to a greater outer transformation, and ultimately, for those of us who are in Christ, to a greater glory, that something that we can't even fully understand, what theologians of the past have called the future glory that we have in Jesus Christ. So Father, we pray that you would help us, because our minds are feeble, our minds are made of flesh, and that flesh has been tainted by sin and death. We need your help. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bridge the gap this morning between heaven and earth and help us to see you for who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, our kingdom value, as you may have figured out already, is purity in heart. The worldly value that that sets up against is, uh, I'm going to call it self-expression today, because that's a word that we understand well in this culture. Self-expression. So we'll, we'll look a little bit about why I, I've chosen that terminology to describe the opposite of purity in, in heart in just a moment. But, uh, but, but let's take a look at, at the parts of this verse, and we're just going to sort of break it into three parts, and we're going to think about what these things mean. First, we're, 
blessed are the pure, right? Blessed are the pure. Because I think we need to understand what purity is. And I'm going to go to the Psalms first because uh, the psalmist writes something. This is a big thought for us today. He says in Psalm chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? The place where God is, right? Who shall stand in his holy place? I think that's a question a lot of people have today. Because we live in a world where it seems like there's so much death and destruction being carried out. Not only by this virus that's ravaging the world. I mean, I read an article this morning that in Europe right now, every 17 seconds a person dies from COVID-19. That is mind-blowing to me. Mind-blowing. It's, 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 it's a horrible thing. And, and, and we should grieve over the pandemic, by the way. We shouldn't treat it like it's nothing. That's not okay. That's not loving your neighbor. That's not, that's not entering into the suffering of the world with the world like Christ has done for us. Right? We want to enter into the suffering, be present where we are. We should grieve over this together. But I imagine there's a lot of people who are just afraid because they don't, they don't know how to ascend to the hill of the Lord. Right? And so for them, death is something that is, is a fearful thing because I don't know what's on the other side. But, but those of us who are in Christ, we know what's on the other side, right? And so he asked this question, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? It's a big question that many people have today. What's on the other side of this life? Am I going to go to heaven when I die? Am I going to be in the presence of the Lord if this pandemic takes me? Well, here's who gets to be in the presence of the Lord. He says in verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. There's good news and bad news here, right? Because uh, I, I see... A little bit of good news and bad news both represented in this text because the good news is there is a way to be in the presence of God. The bad news is that we are very, we have a very difficult time measuring up, right? Because when we see what he's saying, you know, to have a clean hands and a pure heart, to be undefiled, right? That's what he's saying. To, to be undefiled, to, to not be, to not have any impurity in you. That, that sounds like a difficult task to me. I don't know about you guys. I, yeah. that's, that's something we can wrestle with this morning. But what is purity? We need to understand what purity is before we can even really understand what we're being called to here because uh, there are a lot of different ways we can look at the word purity. First, let's just get the basic English definition from the new Oxford American Dictionary. And last week, I thanked the British for giving us definitions to American English words. So uh, we'll, we'll thank them again. Uh, English... Uh, definition is purity is, is something that is not mixed or adulterated with any other substance or material. It's 100% pure. It's, it's, it's that perfect cup of water that all it is is H2O. You know what I mean? It's just like, just pure. That's good stuff, by the way. Have you ever had just like crystal clear, pure water? You know, it's so good. I don't even mind if it has a little bit of mineral in it. In fact, one of my favorite things is to go uh, drink water out of the side of a mountain. It's clean. It's pure. You can tell there's no chemicals in it. 
In other words, a pure person, according to the English language, is someone who is entirely human, as humans are intended to be, and they are not deluded or polluted in any way. They're not less than human in any way. Now, we probably need to talk about the definition of a human a little bit here, but... But, uh, but I want to move, I want to go on a little bit into this. I want to press into this definition a little bit because uh, the, the word that is in the New Testament that Jesus uses for purity, blessed are the pure, that word in Greek is the word katharos. Now, I, I don't normally bring out the Greek because it, normally it doesn't matter. <laughs> and plus, it's, it, for most of us, it's all Greek anyway, right? And, and really, even though I had three uh, semesters of Greek, it's still Greek to me. I still struggle with it. But, but sometimes looking at the original language and the context of a word can actually help us understand what the Bible translators are trying to convey. So that's what I want to do a little bit this, this morning. Um, the, because you may recognize that word, too. This is a word that we actually use fairly frequently in our culture. Katharos, catharsis. You ever hear that word? If you ever took high school or college psychology, you heard that word. And you may have friends who say, well, that was a really cathartic experience. You know, what do they mean by that? You may have watched the Purge movies, right? Those are all about uh, catharsis. I never watched them. I'm not into that kind of thing. But, but I know some people are into that kind of horror. Yeah, whatever. Uh, it's cool for you. It's not for me. <laughs> but, um, but, but the word catharsis means the purging of emotions or, relie- or relieving of emotional tensions, especially through certain kinds of art. Sort of like tragedy. Like what, the, Aristotle believed that if you watched a tragic play, it actually helped you uh, release tensions inside of yourself, and so you could become more pure. You could like purge out the negative elements of your life, because they, we understand as humans, there are certain things in us that aren't pure, that aren't right, and they need to go away so that we can actually be pure. We've got to purge our negative emotions. We've got to purge, you know, you may hear from people, hey, you've got to get rid of your negative energy, man. You know, you've got to like, like uh, in, in, in uh, Buddhism and transcendental, transcendental meditation, you've got to like line up your chi. Like I don't get all that stuff. Uh, it's kind of weird to me, but I get like that's where people, like a lot of people in our world gravitate towards those things because they're trying to find some kind of balance in their life. They realize they're out of balance. So they're, they're looking for it somewhere. They don't know where to find it. So they're looking for catharsis. So maybe I'll go watch some movies that'll make me feel good about myself. That'll help me you know, maybe see the worst in mankind so I can sort of not do what they do. That's my example. And then sort of balance myself out a little bit. Or music is another way. I, I'm a huge music fan, right? Uh, I listen to a ton of music. Um, I like... Lately, I've been into this Russian band called Pompeia. I don't, I don't, they just have this good music, you know? And they sing in English, and they're Russian, so it's like, we won. Anyway, I, I don't know, but uh, um, we won the Cold War. You guys are singing in our language. I, that's all I'm saying. Uh, but uh, I'm too American sometimes. But, um, it, but another, another element of this is in, in uh, psychiatry. The word often, it's, it's an idea, of, it's like a psychotherapy. Catharsis is a psychotherapy that encourages or permits the discharge of pent-up, socially unacceptable effects. Discharge of pent-up emotions and as a result of the alleviation of symptoms or the permanent relief of the condition. Now the reason I bring all this up because you'll, is, is because you'll notice something. Every one of these is really addressing some kind of an external condition, right? Some kind of behavior modification. I have to keep it together so I, I can be a good person. 
According to popular wisdom, catharsis or achieving purity is something we can achieve through various means. You can work towards it. You can, if you work hard enough, you can get there. Catharsis may come through experience, gaining knowledge, uh, finding personal freedom, or discovering oneself in a variety of different ways. How many times have we heard that? Go find yourself. Students, take a gap, gap year so you can go find yourself. I'm not saying you shouldn't take a gap year. I'm just saying it's like the reasoning behind those things is really about, uh, oftentimes, it's about trying to make yourself into the kind of person that you aspire to be. So catharsis is often how people uh, can see themselves becoming the truest version of themselves. And that is actually, I, I say all that because, like I said, it's the same word. It's from the same root word, which means pure. Pure. And honestly, and there, there, there's, a, there's a sense in which popular culture isn't entirely wrong about all of this. We do become our truest selves through catharsis or, or purging those negative elements of ourselves. But what the world has been deceived about because of our father Adam and our mother Eve and their decision to walk a path that, that set them away from God the Father... What they've been deceived about, and what we've been deceived about, is the means by which we get to that purity. Right? Because it's like the Apostle Paul says in Colossians. He says, the world's rules, right? He says, since you've been set free from the world's way of thinking, why do you then go submit yourself to the world's rules again? Do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. The reason why Paul points that out to us is because he's saying, listen, you, Christian, have been set free from thinking that, this is, that purity is something you can achieve on your own strength. So then why do you go back to that way of thinking which, which basically turns your works into some way of meriting favor with God or with other people or with yourself? Paul says you won't ever get there. You cannot get there. In Galatians, he tells us you cannot achieve purity or salvation, or whatever you want to call that, like that ultimate state. You cannot achieve it by trying hard or working harder. You can't get there. Uh, And really, I think, if we really want to understand this concept, we probably have to dive a little bit into the Old Testament, understand the idea of of, of ritual purity in the Old Testament. So in in the Old Testament, we know that, that, probably better to call it the Old Covenant, You know, uh, in the Old Covenant, we know that the Lord gave Israel a set of rules to live by so that they could maintain ritual purity, so they could go worship at the temple or at the tabernacle or whatever. And those things involved certain ceremonial laws, foods you couldn't eat, activities you couldn't participate in. And, and oftentimes we make it about the thing, right? People are like, well, God said don't eat pork because pork is bad for you. That's not necessarily true, actually. Bacon is delicious, okay? Uh, and my grandpa ate bacon every day of his life and died when he was 93 and he was still pretty healthy. So I, you know, I actually was like, he probably lived longer because he ate bacon. I'm just saying. Um, but... There's nothing inherently wrong about eating pork or shellfish or any of these things. The reason why God gave them those rules is because he was, he was separating them from the world, right? And he wanted them to see a, a physical example of what it means to be separated from the world. 
So God had a purpose behind those rules, but it wasn't necessarily for health reasons. Some of it may have been, but, but the majority of it was just because he wanted his people to be other on purpose. But he also wanted an object lesson to show them how, how bad we are in our own strength of actually living up to that standard. So the Old Testament laws of ritual purity were actually designed not so much to make someone pure, but to show them of how far short we actually have fallen from the glory of God. So that when Jesus came, the picture would become so much clearer. The problem with the human pursuit of purity is that our efforts ultimately amount to just leaning harder into ourself. And that's what caused our problem in the first place, right? Adam and Eve bet on themselves. God said, don't eat the fruit from this tree. But Adam and Eve said, eh, it looks good to us. They bet on themselves and on their own perceptions rather than on what God had said. They didn't trust the word of the Lord. They didn't trust the Lord. They trusted in their own strength. And they, they thought the way to a better future was to do them, right? You do you. We hear that all the time in our culture today. To, to go discover themselves. Man, go discover yourselves. You don't need God. Go, go, go uh, spread out your wings. Go practice your freedom. Boy, they sure, they, they sure did have freedom, didn't they? They had freedom to choose to walk away from God, but didn't create anything good or, or worthy. And what good is freedom if, if all it brings you is trouble and destruction? It's no good. It's actually not freedom at all. It becomes bondage. One of my favorite books is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. I read this book multiple times when I was a kid and also as an adult. I've read it multiple times. Uh, it was one of the first books I handed to my daughter when she was old enough, my, you know, my oldest daughter, Ellie, when she was old enough to read longer books. And uh, I'm, I'm real proud of her. Uh, she is totally addicted to that series of books now. So, you know, she's a daughter after my own heart. But... Uh, but, you know, I, I love it when, you, when I catch my kid up at night reading with a flashlight and it's like, you know, Prince Caspian. <laughs> like, that's my girl right there. I'm not even mad um, that, that you're supposed to be sleeping. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but in, in the story, and, and this is a spoiler alert if you haven't read it. I mean, it's been out since like the 50s or maybe earlier than that. So I'm sorry, you've had time. Uh, <laughs> but in this book, we're introduced to the, uh, the land of Narnia. And Narnia is a land which, is, which was created beautiful and has been overrun by an evil white witch. And this white witch has created a landscape that is bland and dull and it's cold and, and, and it's always winter and never Christmas. And, and the, the imagery there is it's just this, it's this world with no joy. There's, no, there's nothing happy or good. It's just it's people are oppressed and they're depressed and... And there, there are those who tried to come against the white witch and they were turned to stone, frozen just like the land. What changes in this story when Christmas returns, when greenery returns, when joy returns to Narnia? It, it's not when some, some, one of the citizens of the land finally overwhelms the witch and conquers her. It's when the lion Aslan shows up. And I love the imagery. Like, if you've never seen the BBC cartoon version, it's so great. It's the best. It's way better than the movies, you know. Um, the, as Aslan comes jumping into the land, it's like everywhere he lands, it just shows the imagery of, the, of snow melting and flowers popping up, you know. And I love this because 
It was the lion who overcame evil by giving himself, by entering into a problem that wasn't his and bringing a solution for it. Sound familiar? C.S. Lewis was a Christian. He knew what he was doing, right? And if anybody knows anything about the Bible at all, you read that book and you're like, oh, I see what you did there, Mr. Lewis. It's an image of Jesus and what he does for us. It's an image of our broken world and how we are apart from Christ. For us, apart from Christ, it's always winter and never Christmas. We may not even know that we're living in that kind of brokenness. We may not know that we don't have ultimate and pure joy. But C.S. Lewis illustrates so well the biblical principle of purity and restoration in that story. Purity and restoration cannot come through human means or effort. Betting on ourselves just like our first parents is only going to bring us more brokenness and tragedy because all it does is serves to perpetuate the problem that we have in the first place. Purity and restoration has to come from outside of us. Understand that the heart of the human, even though we may be generally good people, is still so tainted at the core that the only fix is that we must be made new again. And in order to be made new, in order to be resurrected, there has to be an agent outside who moves to make that happen. Uh, I once heard a preacher preach, and one of the things he said is that I've never seen a dead person raise themselves out of the grave. And when the Bible says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, it's not kidding. The Holy Spirit was not joking. He said, you're dead as a doornail. Your soul is dead as a doornail. And the only way for you to receive resurrection is for the God who has life in his breath to speak it into your heart again. The kind of purity Jesus is calling us to isn't something which can be attained. It can only be received as a gift. So then the question becomes, well, how do we receive it? Bible, the Bible's pretty clear about that, by repenting and believing the good news about Jesus, right? When Peter preached the first sermon in Acts, and they were, the Holy Spirit overwhelmed them, and they, they were convicted to the core, and they said, Brother, brothers, what must we do? And Peter said, repent and believe the good news. He said, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, right? That's how you receive it now probably need to go a little bit more into what repentance means. We'll get there. To, we'll get to repentance in just a minute. But, but again, we have a tendency to focus on the externals, right? So we can look at, for instance, we can look at the Chronicles of Narnia and just focus on the flowers replacing the snow. But we could totally forget about the transformation of the creatures and how they became something entirely different than what they were before the lion showed up, Right? And we can, we can focus on behavior modification for us. Anybody can look like a good person. Anybody can get their act together. But no one but Jesus has the power to transform the heart. Jesus says not only that we're to be pure, but pure in heart. That's a specific type of purity. It's a purity that goes deeper. What he's saying is you, you are to be the kind of people whose hearts are undiluted by anything Sinful or dark or broken. That's a perfection I can't really fathom, to be honest with you. I've been walking with Jesus for a long time. I still struggle to fathom what that perfection looks like. But it's what we're called to. This is something that St. Augustine wrote in his Confessions. 
But the law is good to build on if a man use it lawfully. For that the end is charity out of a pure heart and good conscience and faith unfeigned. Let me, that's actually a scripture quote, by the way. 1 Timothy 1.5 But the aim of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Working, working to improve yourself is not inherently wrong. It's not. Working to improve yourself uh, is, is okay, provided that we do it properly. But God's aim for the law, His instruction, was never about justifying the person on the outside. But it was about the practice of repentance. The motivation here has to be love. That's, that's critical. But we're not talking about just any love. We're talking about the God kind of love. Now here's what the God kind of love looks like. The God kind of love is... Jesus in the throne room of heaven with everything he could ever want. Looking down to this mess and saying, I'm not okay with that. I didn't do that. I wasn't a part of that problem. It's not really my responsibility. But I'm going to go take care of it anyway. And I'm going to do it by spilling my own blood. True love is about preferring another person over yourself, right? Even if it hurts you. True love's not just some ushy, gushy, ooey-gooey, oh, she's so cute, or he's so hot, or whatever it is. True love is self-sacrifice. True love is when I die to myself so someone else can live. Scripture tells us, right? Greater man has no love than this. The man lay his life down for his friends, and Jesus told his disciples, and I lay my life down for you. That's the kind of love that has to be the motivation for this. Not a self-serving love, not a love where you get something in return, a love where you're completely and utterly turned away from yourself and towards someone else. If we don't come with that kind of love as the motivation, then trying to improve yourself might actually produce the opposite effect of what we intend. And that's how sin twists us up. Because it gets us focused on self-improvement instead of keeping our eyes on Jesus. Spiritual discipline is a, is a, is a word that gets, or is a term that gets thrown around the church quite a bit. And it's a good term, and spiritual discipline is a good thing. But we need to understand that spiritual discipline is the active pursuit of living in the grace of God rather than in the human wisdom that comes most naturally to us. It's not about behavior modification. It's about practicing repentance actively, turning from self and towards God. Why do I fast? Because when I fast, I'm practicing putting aside my own needs so that I can turn my heart towards Jesus. Now, it's, fasting, by the way, uh, is, is one example. And it's not like the scriptures require it. I mean, although Jesus kind of seemed like he thought we would fast. He said, when you fast, do it like this. But, but understand that fasting itself is not some magical thing. It's not the act of fasting itself. It's the fact that through fasting, I'm learning to put my eyes on Jesus and take them off myself. 
That's why spiritual discipline is good. Why do I pick up my Bible and read every single day? And, and, and some days I read a long time. Why, why are there days when, when I really want to watch a YouTube video, but I don't? Instead, I pull this out and I go to the Word. Because through reading Scripture, it's not so much about me learning, by the way. That's part of it. It's a good thing. I do learn. But it's actually about my personal disposition being away from myself and towards Christ, right? It's about keeping my eyes on Him. There, I used to get really upset with myself when I would read the Bible and not retain what I read. Now I've come to realize that the Lord doesn't call us to take up and read just so that we can get more information. It's actually just about so our heart can be with Him. Just about resting with Him. Man, that's important, right? I want to just rest with Him. And there are days when I, uh, I'm cooking breakfast for my kids and I just turn the, my audio Bible on. I just listen to the Word while I cook. I don't remember a lot of what I, read, what I read, but do you know what? My soul is lifted just by having the Word of God flow through my ears. One of my favorite things to do at night, I use this Bible app called the Dwell Bible. It has a little subscription fee, but man, is it worth it. It's really cool. Uh, it's, it's got a bunch of audio Bibles, and, uh, and they're not sponsoring us, but if you guys want to sponsor us, whatever. Uh, but <laughs> we... Uh, uh, what I love about this is you can put it on what's called dwell mode, and it'll just repeat a passage of Scripture over and over again. So like I, got, I like to go to bed at night just having a passage of Scripture repeated. you know. And, it, and there's different voices, and it will switch between the voices and different translations. It's just really cool. Automatically does it. So like Psalm 23, the other night I just laid down, and I listened to Psalm 23. I don't know how many times I let it go for 30 minutes. I was asleep by the time it turned off, but... Uh, that benefits my soul. I've just found it's just being immersed. Immerse in the Word of God. Spiritual discipline is powerful because even though we are new in Christ, we are not a finished work, and so we're in the middle of a struggle, right? And God, God has given us everything we need. We have grace. We have all the tools we need. We have the Holy Spirit. But now He's invited us to join Him in renovating our hearts and lies by following after Jesus and actively practicing that repentance. Turn away from self, turn towards Him. Turn away from self, turn towards Him. It's a process. God isn't simply looking for people who have it all together or who do nice things. That's oftentimes what we think of when we think of purity. That's a, that's a pure person because they seem nice and they seem to have good motives. But that's not all God is referring to. There are a lot of good people. This is going to be a hard word. I'm just going to tell you now. I'm just going to say something kind of hard, but it's, it's true. There are a lot of good people who are going to find themselves in hell someday. I'm not saying that to scare anybody. That's not the point of this. I'm not saying it because God hates anybody. Because it's not true. They're, they're going to be in that place of separation from God, not because God doesn't care for them, but because they don't care for God. Not because their care for God doesn't go deeply enough. They're not, their ultimate concern is not Him and His glory and His goodness. And if our eyes are not on Him, at some point, the direction that we are going to go is, is not going to be good. But Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, right? 
In fact, he says that on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why? Why, why are these good people being turned away from the gates of heaven? It's because, notice their emphasis, it's not on God's goodness or his glory or his grace, but on their own works. There's a lot of people who've performed really well, who look really good, who even, you would look at them and say, model Christian. But at the end of the day, when they stand before the Lord, God's going to see right through you to your heart. And he sees that your heart is deluded because you did all those things because you loved yourself and not because you loved him. See what I'm saying? It's not good enough to lean on our own abilities. It's not good enough to lean on our own logic and, 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 and power and strength or discipline. Jonathan Dodson writes that expressive individualism works against the grain of the gospel. And then he gives us an example of kind of how this works out maybe in the church. He says, the gospel says, take up your cross and follow me, but expressive individualism says, take up your cause and follow self. When everyone takes up an individual cause or concern other than Christ, the church turns into a department of motor vehicles. The room is packed with disgruntled people waiting to get their issue serviced, beady eyes on the counter. They can't wait to get their number called and then get out. Is it any wonder the church struggles to express the gospel to the world or that the world is disinterested in the news we have to share. Instead of pointing away from ourselves to the supremely unsatisfying cause of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever, we drum our fingers in anxious concern that our agenda isn't being validated. I've heard it more times than I want to in the church, where someone's upset because we didn't pick the right carpet color, or because the music didn't match their preference that day, or because the sermon just didn't feed my heart, didn't feed me. See what, I'm, see what he's pointing out is that when we fall into those traps, we're not thinking of others. We're not, that's not purity. That's thinking of self. And, and even if you have the right motivations, it can actually take you in a very bad direction. The complicated thing about expressive individualism, he continued, uh, continues, in the church is that many of the individual concerns are valid. Jesus himself calls us to many of them. However, The issue is not that our concerns are invalid, it is that they are ultimate. They displace the deeper joy of taking up our cross and following Jesus. Anything that gets in our way of keeping our eyes on Christ and Christ alone is only getting in the way. Even if it's a good thing. Through repentance, we are turning away from self and towards Jesus And if the problem with humanity is that we are turned inward, that's what we've been saying, right? The problem with humanity is that we are turned inward rather than towards the Lord. The only way for us to become what God intended for us to be is by turning away from self and towards Christ. Focusing on our own good deeds will turn us further away from God and we likely won't even realize it in the moment. We will be so blinded by our own artificial light that we won't be able to see the true light of Christ. And and can I tell you, that's exactly where the devil wants us to be. He wants us, we're pretty special. The reason why many in our world are unhappy and unsatisfied with this life is that 
possessions, accomplishments, accolades, or being true to self will never be able to satisfy our souls. Only Jesus can do that. It's so easy for the enemy to get us focused on self while even doing good things because it's a self-expression. Self-expression is a value buried deep within the DNA that makes up the human heart for all of us who are living on the east side of Eden. Resisting it requires God's grace. Producing in us the willingness to float the river on God's raft rather than trying to swim upstream through the rapids. That's only God's grace. To rest in Him. This is one of the reasons I love Thanksgiving, by the way. Love the holiday. And I am frustrated that it seems like in corporate America we skip Thanksgiving. I mean, you know, and I love Christmas too, but... I mean, like, if I walk into Walmart or Hobby Lobby, and I'm sorry, Green family, I'm not trying to insult you, but, I mean, like, I walk into these places, and it's, like, October, and, like, we haven't even had uh, All Saints Day yet. That's what I call it. Or Reformation Day. That's what I like to call it. We haven't even had, uh, we haven't even had October 31st yet. Commemorating Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses. I'm just saying. We haven't even had that day yet, and uh, we haven't even had Thanksgiving yet. We're already skipping to the day that we've turned into the day of materialism, because it sells. Thanksgiving doesn't sell. You know why it doesn't sell? Because if I'm giving thanks, I'm having to acknowledge that something I have came from outside of me. We don't like that. We're self-made people here. We love turkey, right? We like to tell stories. We like to watch Charlie Brown. It's going to be on PBS this year. That's great, right? Everybody gets to watch it. You don't even have to have cable. Woo! I got it on Amazon. So if you ever want to come over, I, I bought it on Prime Video. You come, come watch it at my house. But, uh, you know, we don't like Thanksgiving because it, it forces us to think outside of ourselves. I'm not saying we don't, all of us don't like Thanksgiving. I'm just saying the culture sort of gravitates toward things that are more inwardly focused. When humans rebelled against God... He would have been perfectly justified in destroying the entire world right there. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but he would have been. We, we rebelled against him. We tainted his perfect world. But what did God do? He didn't destroy us, did he? No. He didn't. He had patience with us. What did he do to Adam and Eve? He treated them with love. He didn't come at them and lash out in anger. He questioned them and then he clothed them. He clothed them. God made clothing for them. He gave them direction. He told them what to do from that point on. He guided them so they wouldn't utterly destroy themselves. He's still doing that today. We call it common grace. It's the grace that everyone receives, whether you're a Christian or not. It's why the world doesn't implode on itself. It's why Russia didn't nuke us. It's common grace. It's what we all experience, and it's why there's a little goodness in all of us. A little bit of the, the image of God is in every person, and some of it still gets through, even through the shell of brokenness. But the greatest kindness God has ever shown is sending His own Son to take up His cross for our sins, to take our sins upon Himself so that we can be free to live the way God created us to live. Jesus lived a life of repentance, even though He didn't have to. You ever thought about that? 
Jesus didn't have to turn away from self because he was God. And yet, look what he did. He lived his entire life doing only what he saw the Father doing. He lived his entire life in dependence on the Holy Spirit. We're talking about here, the one who spoke everything into existence. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us, right? In Colossians, he says he spoke all things into existence. Yet he was born in a manger? Excuse me? He spoke all things into existence, yet he died on a cross? Are you kidding me? He could have done anything he wanted to while he was here. But he was constantly subservient. He chose to be. Because he knew that by submitting himself to that kind of torment and pain, and by the way, every moment of his life had to be some kind of torment and pain, if you think about it. He left the throne room of heaven, which is his home. No one has ever felt more out of place than Jesus. The glorious one, here. Can you even imagine? Because the truth is always greater than what we could, we could ever imagine. But he faced it for us. It's the greatest kindness that God has ever shown us. He's, so, he did this to show us what it's like to be truly human. I mentioned that earlier, right? Being truly human. A pure and true human is a human turned away from self and towards God. Okay, so you hear people say, be true to yourself, but Jesus was true to others while dying to himself. A pure heart is, is a different sort of thing. And when people see it, it kind of blows their minds, right? People looked at Jesus, they were like, what a strange person. They didn't know, they didn't know how to categorize him. They were at the same time turned off by him and mesmerized by him. They didn't know what to do because he was so incredible, so different. Let's remember that pretty much no one in Jesus' inner circle agreed with the way that he did things. They didn't agree with his self-sacrificing lifestyle. I mean, Peter wanted to take up the sword. Jesus' brothers wanted him to pursue fame. Judas wanted, to prove, wanted him to prove who he was. Thomas was ready to die with him, but he was really sarcastic. He was like, well, he's going to go to Jerusalem. We might as well all go and die with him, you know? It's like no one really believed, like no one really agreed with the way he went about things because it just was so different than what any of us are used to. But to be pure in heart, to be pure in heart means a person who at the core of who you are, you're turned away from self and towards God and towards others as a result. Now what's the result of that? The scripture says they will see God. They will see God. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. We be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we are has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. You get what John is telling us here? How do you become a person who's pure in heart? How, how does this happen? Not by trying harder. Not by doing more. Not by trying to merit some kind of righteousness for yourself. But by turning away from yourself and towards Jesus. And then 
It is something that God does to you. I have to point out one more time. It's not our goodness or abilities that makes us pure before God. It is our hope in Christ. And hope means trust. Look, people trust in all kinds of things. What they can do. What others have done. Who's in political office right now. We trust in all kinds of things, don't we? But... But we must trust in what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, and what Christ will do for us. And it may seem subtle, but letting go of self and falling into Christ is absolutely huge. It's a a huge deal. And it's a gift of grace that enables us to think like Christ rather than like our first father, Adam. And to trust in God rather than in ourselves. Pure people get to see God because they are no longer looking for a God who is like themselves, but are looking to become like God. And so their eyes are actually looking for the real God. Their hearts are turned towards Him, and they're open to who He truly is. Their desire is for Him. I want to close with just a couple thoughts here. Uh, because we know that it's a pure in heart who will see God. So what about those whose hearts are not pure, who, whose hearts are still deluded with this world? Well, they, they can't see God. They won't see God. But that doesn't have to be the ultimate end for anyone who's listening to this today. I want to remember a great song of the 60s. The Beatles wrote, it's called, All You Need Is Love, right? I think we probably all know that song. My kids even know it, thanks to the Netflix show Beat Bugs, which is a show inspired by the Beatles songs. But anyway, my kids even know all these Beatles songs. But the concept itself, all you need is love, not entirely wrong, but then we have to ask what kind of love we're talking about. Because like we mentioned earlier, it's not human love, it's the love of God, the love that seeks after the good of someone that I'm loving, even at my own detriment. It's the love that is marked by self-sacrifice rather than by selfishness. It's a big task, right, if we're thinking of it as something that we can try to achieve. But Christ lived a pure and perf- a pure life, perfectly marked by the God kind of love. He died in our place, demonstrating ultimate love by going through great harm to bring about our good. Nothing about Jesus' life or death was the best for himself. Think about that. Nothing about Jesus' life or death was the best thing for himself. It was all about loving us. It was all about granting us true life that he created us for. It hurt. It was painful. It was difficult. But he did it because he loves you and he loves me. If you want to see God, you have to have a pure heart. We can never get there on our own, but if you Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn your eyes away from yourself and towards Him. He will make you pure. It comes by grace. It's a gift from God. Now my question to all of us today is will we receive this gift of grace humbly from Him today? Have you received it? Are you receiving it? Because I want to tell you, it's not just a one-time thing. Sure, you're saved by grace. Salvation is something that like, once you receive it as a gift, okay, you have it. 
But it doesn't mean that we live in that truth every day. That's a practice. So every day we have to practice turning away from self and towards Christ. I, I encourage everyone here and, and watching online to consider this today. Are you f living freely in God's grace today? Are you living as a person who's pure in heart? Or do you find yourself still struggling and living to justify yourself through your works or through, good, through actions or whatever it is? Life is found in Christ alone, and He calls us to live as such and be free in Him. Thanks for listening to this podcast from New Covenant Fellowship. We'd love to connect with you. If God spoke to you today, if you'd like someone to pray for you, you can text us at 405-518-5164 or visit us at ncfokc.org to find other ways to connect with our church. God bless. Have a great day.